0: Hi, and welcome to The Plays The Thing. My name is Tim McIntosh, and I am here with Sarah Jane Bentley. Sarah Jane, how are you?
2: I'm really well, Tim, thank you. I'm joining you from the balcony um, in a mansion on top of an escarpment looking out over Lake Ontario.
0: That sounds really miserable. (laughs) (laughs)
2: pouring <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> know, sunshine on me <laughs>
0: <laughs> what what took you to Canada
2: um, I'm here just um being a mentor on a Christian camp oh that's great is, is yes. this something
0: that you've done repeatedly is this your first time doing it
2: I've actually never done it before so I've been learning as much as the campers have and I've really enjoyed it
0: um how are how are the fellow campers how are the campers treating you
2: I think they're kind of a little bit intrigued by my accent, <laughs> and um, I get the sense that I'm. So I think the word the Canadians use is saucy. That um, I think I'm coming across as like a bit stern or a bit strict or a bit more bothered about rules than perhaps I should be. I don't know. And they're not trying to. But
0: <laughs> their word for that is saucy. Yeah. How do, how do you how do you use that word in England? Saucy.
2: Saucy. What would be the equivalent? Maybe, I don't know, like saying you're a bit blunt, a bit abrupt.
0: Gosh, I, I think that word in the States, I think people would say that you're sassy if they meant you're saucy. If they, if they said you're saucy, I think they would mean you're sassy. Like you've got a okay. little bit of a wit and you're not afraid to <laughs> use it with ill intent. That's what I would think. But... Who knows? Maybe I've not been using that word (laughs) properly. Uh, Well, welcome from your beautiful outlook. And now we have to descend into the purgatory, which is act two of Othello. Yes. Um, (laughs) We we (laughs) talked last week about how the the play feels claustrophobic. And it seems like an Mm. act two, the wall's. The walls are being set up, and they're going to begin to close in as we progress through two, three, and four.
2: That's right. Um, That's a really good point, Tim, because the play begins in darkness, doesn't it? And yeah. now, at the beginning of Act Two, we're, we're in the middle of the night. It's really dark, and there's a storm, and it's so confusing, the whole atmosphere, that they don't even know who's coming in off the sea, whether it's the Turks, whether it's Othello, whether it's Yago's ship. Um, so, yeah, we're still in the darkness, and it's, it's very similar to Macbeth in that sense. That yes, it is. Both the plays take place in the darkness a lot. And it, you're right, it gets more and more claustrophobic to the end, where in the last scene, we're kind of right in the, in the chamber with Desmona and Othello.
0: Right. And as a piece of stagecraft, I think it's really interesting that we don't know. So the scene is being set by these kind of secondary characters at the top of Act Two and they tell us that they're worried about this storm and that Othello is in the storm. And then, what do you know? Someone sees what they think is his ship, but it actually ends up not being his ship. It's the ship that has Iago and Desdemona. And so they arrive first, Mm. and the great enemy of our play, Iago, gets to set the scene about what's going to happen before Othello arrives again, which I think is... Yeah. A very clever bit of stagecraft that that our narrator, yeah. basically our narrator is the character with the ill intent and he is the one that constantly is pushing the action forward in this play.
2: You're right. And it's a mirror of act one, isn't it? Where we began with that conversation with Rodrigo and Iago. So the first things we learn about Othello, color our judgment against Othello because Iago tells us about him.
0: Right. <laughs> Iago is always telling us about everyone. Okay. And one of the yeah. things that we learn in act two is, well, really in, the, in late in act one, we learn more about his motives. And mm-hmm. one of the potential motives, we talked about this at the end of the podcast. One of his potential motives is that he suspects that his wife has been unfaithful with Othello. That's right. And we meet Amelia in Act Two. What's your impression of her in Act Two? Does she seem like the sort of person that um, would be faithful to Iago that might cheat with Othello? What's your impression of her?
2: Well, I think anyone married to Iago is going to have their work cut out to even find time to have an affair with somebody else because it seems like (laughs) she's... She's having to spend a lot of time defending herself. um, And, you know, she, she is, she's pretty sassy. In fact, you know, she, she gives answers to Yago when, when we first hear them discussing um, the insults that Yago gives her about what, what wives are like. He he Mm -hmm. paints a horrible picture of women Mm -hmm. and she says, um, you shall not write my praise. You know, Mm. I don't, I don't want you being the testament to who I am, which is a, a terrible situation to be in a marriage. Right. Your husband should be, you know, your greatest defender and protector. He should be the one singing your praises. So it seems like she she must be quite independent. I think in some ways.
0: And yet, and yet, she does Iago's bidding in two and three. She yeah, does exactly good. what he wants to do. So how do you how do you reconcile that?
2: Well, I think there's a kind of frailty in in the human condition isn't there where despite the fact that she knows that that Iago's praise is um is is actually a condemnation that scene where she's she captures the handkerchief for him she does you're right she does seem to be desperate to to gain his affection so maybe it's the difference between her in public with Iago and her in private with Iago
0: I wonder if in private if she's terrified of him. Mm. but in public yeah. can kind of play a little bit of a role because she has the, the the kind of protection of other eyes around her.
2: That's right, yes. And she can appeal to well Desdemona, for example, for some kind of support, yeah.
0: Right, true. right. Okay, um, I'm going to ask you the same question about Desdemona. We learn a little bit more about her in Act 2. In Act 1, my impression of Desdemona is is the faithful, wooed wife who's, who's a little bit transfixed by Othello, partly yeah. because of his strangeness, partly because of his, his strangest, meaning he's not from Desdemona's world, and partly because of his exploits. She says that he wooed her, kind of recounting, what happened during his battles and that's what she fell for him. So now the curtain is being drawn back a little bit more about Desdemona. Is, is your opinion of her changing in act two? Is it staying the same?
2: I think um, Desdemona is really fascinating. Um, the interesting statement we get about her from Iago, which again is not entirely trustworthy at the end of act one is, is that um, she's a super subtle Venetian. He calls Othello an erring barbarian and mm-hmm. Desdemona a super subtle Venetian. So he suggests that she's duplicitous, in fact, um, which stands against all the epithets that are used to describe her. She's described as you know, divine Desdemona mm. by Cassio. And as we, we talked a little bit about her being a bit like Venus, the goddess of love in the play and so you're right she's full of virtue but when she first meets Iago on the shore here uh, or first kind of publicly speaks to Iago on the shore and in front of everyone in Cyprus she I don't know do you think she's being a little bit flirtatious um, after yes. Emilia <laughs> says, you shall not write my praise she says oh well Iago what would you say about me you know am I any better and you know, we spoke as well, didn't we, about how in the source, Iago is, is absolutely flat out, hands down, in love with Desdemona, uh-huh. and he says in this scene a little bit as well, not in this scene, but in this act, um, he says, I, "I kind of love Desdemona. I'm a bit in love with her, but it's for pragmatic reasons." Uh huh. So, um, and, he, and
0: he articulates his intention to seduce her, which used to be, but then he then he drops that. I, I don't recall anywhere in the play where he is actively pursuing that
2: exactly yeah it's true and she she is a really desirable woman and it seems like the men are in love with her but not necessarily in a in a kind of lustful way they just Mm -hmm. admire her as this paragon of virtue i think cassio does um and iago I mean, if if anyone can be called a misogynist, that's a term that's used so loosely today, uh, Iago can. But I'd go further and say he's a misanthropist. He doesn't just hate women. He just hates people. He hates them. So Desdemona, we have to pity her because if we don't, the tragedy doesn't work. Um, So she's no fool. She is enchanted by Othello's stories, but she says something like, I had a, a vision in my mind of, of what he was like, and she seems to understand him. And throughout the play, she shows a kind of a willingness, an altruism to, to try and always create harmony where there's disorder. She wants Othello to forgive Cassio, for example, and the problem is that Iago's so aware of this, he's able to twist her virtuous actions. Yeah. I mean, how would you cast Desdemona if you were going to direct this production?
0: I think, I think for the play, I, I think that she has to have a sense of innocence about her. I think if you get, if you and, and, and thus, I think she would have to be um, a little bit younger. Mm-hmm. I think that if she is. Othello's peer in any way, I think it diminishes the kind of the pain. I mean, it's a strange thing you want to inflict. You really want the play to hurt. That's what makes the play work is at the end. It's just, it's so unbearable. And I think if she is not as worldwise as Othello is, if she's younger than him, but yet also, I think that she really believes in Othello. Like, I really think that um, her affection for his exploits is is really genuine. It's it's not, um, she's not putting on just to kind of like win this man's affection. I think she's genuinely impressed by him, don't you?
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think what you said about age is, is really important. We know that Iago's 34, isn't that what he says? He's 34 years old. That's right. And he's always making dirty, smutty jokes about the sexual relationship between Othello and Desdemona, um, as if Othello's too old and, um, you know, he's, he's going to kind of run out of the energy of passion.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, and Desdemona, Desdemona is so gentle. You're right. She's, she's not, she does have a kind of innocence about her, but she's not completely naive. If we're looking at this conversation on the shore. Um, Iago does respond and start to praise Desdemona with these uh, jokes. They're kind of remember we had the um, the Doge in the first act speaking in proverbial couplets, which yes. is a very serious way to to give a lesson. We now have Iago doing the same, but with the opposite effect. He's now speaking in couplets to to give a load of proverbial nonsense, really. And Desdemona says. Um, Oh, most lame and impotent conclusion. Do not learn of him, Emilia, though he be thy husband. Is he not a most profane and liberal counsellor? So she does seem to have an authoritative voice because she has a moral authority over Iago.
0: Okay, how, how much of that authority over Iago is because of her position and how much of it is because of her character?
2: That's a, yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it. I think it's both, isn't it? Because yeah, I think it is. yeah.: He's the daughter of a senator. She's now the wife of the most powerful general in the Venetian army, and Iago's just the ancient.
1: Yeah.: Yeah,
0: just the ancient, which is going to drive which just drives him crazy, or at least didn't yeah. play. I, I read something by um, John Gilgood, the famous actor. In, I think he played Othello, or he at least directed Othello, but I think he played Othello and he made an interesting comment that um, he did not think that he could actually believe in the character of Othello unless he believed that Othello was completely sexually innocent previous to Desdemona.
2: Right. Yes. That his, his couch has been the bed of war. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. So there's, in a way, there's a kind of naivety about Othello.
0: Right, right. And I mean, part part of, it seems like any marriage is the spouses, the couple, each kind of have a a, a, <laughs> a picture of what the other is like when they yeah. first begin to meet each other and mm. hopefully begin to fall in love. And then the reality sets in. And it seems like, and the reality setting in can be handled with um, compassion and dexterity or can yeah. be handled, it can be handled in a poor way. Like, what did you do with the person that I thought that I was marrying? You know, that could be, that could be the response. And it seems like if Othello is indeed sexually or at least romantically innocent, well then what great troubles he's going to have when he discovers or when he fears that Desdemona is not being faithful to him. He has no, he has no experience to call on. This is just perhaps like the way of women or the way of this particular woman. And he has no alternative vision of what she might actually be like, like.
2: Exactly. And that's why at the end, the final scene, he doesn't, he doesn't try to use, you know, if he'd only used love to conquer all of this confusion that Iago's created, um, he might have triumphed, but he doesn't. He uses what he knows, which is right. violence in, in war, in the marriage bed, and it's disastrous. It's magic. Yeah. But the other problem is, um, so we're talking a little bit now about Othello's marriage to Desdemona. His, his marriage counsellor, if you like, is Yago, who thinks yeah. that that marriage is a frail vow yeah. And, you know, Yago doesn't believe in love or virtue. He's already said to Rodrigo, virtue of fig. Mm-hmm. Our, you know, our wills garden our, our bodies, our wills cultivate us, our desires cultivate us. Um, and so marriage is being undermined by Iago from the beginning. And yeah. um, he is more experienced in marriage than Othello. But his experience is not, um, it's not instructive. It's the opposite.
1: Yeah.
0: That line, virtue of fig, is in ourselves that we are thus or thus. Our bodies are our gardens, to the which our wills are gardeners. Mm. It's it's one of the most disturbing. it, It sounds, it's very philosophical it sounds plausible but i wonder for for someone in shakespeare's time would they hear this and say oh my goodness like this is a this is a profanity of the worst sort or would they say no this is plausible this is something that like good good people can believe
2: i think you're right i think they would be um as macbeth said so so gospeled that they, they would hear this as um, a very kind of dangerous philosophy by which to live your life. Uh-huh. They might. I don't know. It, it would be quite... Perhaps some of the nobility in the audience might by this time already know about Machiavelli.
1: Yeah. Who
2: ha- has a kind of idea about politics, um, which, which suggests that um, people in power live by a different morality to, um, everybody else Mm -hmm. and that, you know, what, what they want to do is law essentially. Um, so yeah, I really struggle with this little passage from Iago because I find him a bit contradictory. He says that, and then he goes on to say, but we have reason to cool our raging motions. So he seems to then be painting this picture of, um, of people who have on the one hand hot passions Mm -hmm. and then on the other hand, cold reason. And life is a kind of battle between these two things. Right. So it's quite a sort of dualistic picture of a human being. And I think, you know, Christians in the audience probably, well, I'd hope would recognize that as being untrue.
0: The, um, I'm glad you brought, brought Machiavelli. So listeners will probably know the name Machiavelli, but just in case he's a little bit unfamiliar the famous work is the prince. He's an Italian and he is, Machiavelli is an advisor to kings. And he writes this book that to this day, Sarah Jane, people debate whether or not the prince is actually meant as a straightforward advice book, because it is all about how kings have to actually rule. And he's writing during the time of there's this kind of notion of the divine right of kings that kings can, or queens for that matter, can rule in great virtue and great justice. And Machiavelli's the prince seems to just rip the mask off that or, or attempts to rip the mask off that and says, listen, that's not actual real politic. That's not the way that, that kings have to actually rule. Mm-hmm. They have to actually rule with great force sometimes because they're constantly in threat of being assassinated. They're constantly under threat of foreign invasion. They're constantly under threat of kind of barbarity taking over their kingdom. And so it's nice to pretend that, um, the King can just be virtuous and honest and never duplicitous, but let's be real here. The King has to, he he has to rule, with uh, an iron fist and a velvet glove, you know? And that's what yeah. The Prince is about. And I think it's really interesting that Shakespeare, at least in two plays, makes reference to Machiavelli. The one that comes to mind is um, Richard III. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking
2: this. about Richard as well. He, he yeah. says
0: something to the effect that he'll put, he'll put um, Machiavelli to shame. He's going to act with (laughs) Richard act with such darkness that he's going to put Machiavelli to shame. So I think you're right that like English nobility would probably know who Machiavelli is enough so that Shakespeare could could name drop him.
2: Yeah, he died in 1527. This play is something like where are we? 1603, four.
0: So a generation and a half earlier.
2: So I think he. Yeah, I think probably he would have been well known. And um, yes, I mean Iago and Richard the Third and Machiavelli, that's a brilliant comparison to just perhaps we could just draw that out a bit. Um, what does what does Richard the third say? He says, uh, but I that I'm not shaped for sportive tricks. tricks. Yeah. Made from court and amorous looking glass. And he says, in this weak and piping time of peace, I cannot prove a lover and therefore I'll prove a villain. And gives right. the idle pleasures of these days. And the worst thing that could have happened for Othello really is that the storm conquers the Turkish fleet. And, and now we are in a time of peace and Iago goes about all kinds of villainy because there isn't this necessity to fight a war. And right. so, it's yeah. It's a great comparison. To what me. the
0: old phrase "idle hands are the devil's workshop."
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. I don't <laughs> know where that comes it comes
0: from. It's so true. It's so yeah. true.
2: An idle mind is the devil's shop.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> um yeah.
0: Sarah Jane, you teach Shakespeare. Do yeah. you have do you have kind of a, a common approach? If you're if someone asked you, okay, I really want to try to tackle Othello, and I've got class of 20 how do I do it how, how would I go about it
2: yeah I mean I can talk a bit about this it's I would have a class of 20 and I'd also have about maybe three or four months to teach it mm. um with maybe four three and a half four hours a week to do that so I'd be thinking in those terms okay um, and I've only ever really taught with unfortunately, a kind of a final exam destination in mind. Um, So that can be quite restrictive. But I've...
0: Can I ask you a question about that, about the final exam? Do you write the final exam or do you have to adopt somebody else's final exam?
2: No, I I don't write it. It's it's actually written by um, a kind of an exam body that serves the whole country. So we have lots of past papers and have a pretty good idea of what the essay questions will be and how long they'll have to answer them. But okay. it is quite reductive because it takes all the teaching of a, an amazing play like this or Macbeth or Coriolanus um, and then there are 45 minutes to write an essay about it and that's it.
0: With those is like one of with that is one of your restrictions. Yeah. How would you tackle this? How would you tackle this play?
2: Well, I have since discovering the Circe Institute and listening to Andrew Kern I've kind of tried to park all of that and teach with, um, teach from a state of rest, so mm. not be anxious about any of that. And I try to teach with some really strong first principles. So at the beginning of the course, I might begin by looking at um, maybe between six and 10 big ideas in the play that we're going to be revisiting again and again throughout throughout the, the lessons on the play. Um, so for example, for, for this one, I'd probably start with, with words and the power of words in the play. Um, I'd look a bit at how Brabantio in the first scene denies their power. How Othello thinks, as we said, that he's not very good at talking and yet clearly he does have a very eloquent turn of phrase. Um, how Desdemona seems to be seduced by words. Um, how, how people's language breaks down in the play. Um, and how Iago uses language to powerfully twist Othello. So that would be one thing. And then, you know, I'd build in a few others as well, probably look at reputation. Um, Mm -hmm. Then we spoke a bit as well, didn't we, about that metaphor um, of we've got love and war going on in a kind of conflict where those two plots sort of come together, either as a backdrop or the foreground. Um, And I kind of start with that, I think. And, um, I, I teach through conversation like this. This is, this is how my lessons are a lot of the time.
0: Um, Sarah Jane, do you ever read any of the play aloud with the students or do you assign it and presume that they've done the reading outside of class?
2: A bit of both really. Um, it's really fun to read the speeches, um, read the speeches aloud and, um, try and do a little bit of improvisation in the lesson. We spoke at the end of the last um, podcast on Act One about some good resources and the Royal Shakespeare Company's uh, national theatre live productions are available. So I, I, I often, if it's, if it's Shakespeare, try and show it to them. So I'll either take them to the theatre or we'll watch it and then discuss and every week they'll write an essay. So they write an essay a week.
0: And how much do you have to work to convince your students that Shakespeare is not a museum piece, that he's actually <laughs> really great?
2: I don't have to work very hard to do that at all, Shakespeare. Okay, wh- why not? <laughs> why
0: not? Because is students <laughs> come equipped with that? Or what's the background such that you don't have to convince them of that?
2: Yeah, maybe it's something I really take for granted, and I should be more grateful for it, that I'm just really blessed to teach um, very bright students who don't really struggle to understand the language very much, so it's, no. it's already accessible, perhaps. Um, yeah. But I, I think, you know, as, as Hamlet says, Shakespeare's plays hold a mirror up to nature, and, and they, they do see aspects of, of human nature in... In these characters I think all children do and uh, what we have to do as teachers is make sure they're aware you know okay there's a mirror but it's also a window we're trying to see those faults look beyond them and then you know try and practice some of the virtues that we see right as well I, I,
0: I ask because when I was in high school and I would say even in college yeah I was not a good student, first of all. So that's the qualifying caveat that may explain everything (laughs) I'm about to say. Um, I, I could, I did not, I thought Shakespeare was the most boring. Just, it was something that you had to do in a a literature class because your teacher was a romantic who didn't really understand (laughs) the world and she liked Shakespeare, or maybe she didn't even like Shakespeare, but she had to teach it because it was part of the course requirements. You know, it, that was kind of my opinion of Shakespeare. And I, I think, honestly, it was really late for me. It, it, it might have even been when I saw the Lawrence Fishburne Othello in the cinema that I realized, oh my goodness, Shakespeare is alive and he is oh and I'll I'll tell you another one um there was a Mel Gibson Hamlet that was done in the 90s and I remember going to see that and there's a particular scene this actually might have been the moment for me
2: okay
0: if you remember um after after Hamlet has killed Ophelia's father he's summoned by the king and the king has all of these I don't know what are they maps or documents on this table. And Mel Gibson rushes in knowing that he's about, he's in huge trouble with his father-in-law, the King, and he leaps up on the table. So he's kind of (laughs) towering over. Do you remember this scene? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And I, I remember just thinking previous to seeing that movie that Hamlet was this kind of an abstracted philosopher who is, you know, just melancholy yeah. and along with people. And then I saw Mel Gibson play it and I thought, this is different. And yeah. Shakespeare is, Shakespeare is really, really thrilling. So I feel like my job as a teacher, when I have taught Shakespeare's, I've oftentimes had to kind of do first things first, which is let the students fall in love with Shakespeare enough so that they will do the work and i have to do, the teacher doesn't have to motivate yeah. them to care.
2: That's right. And I, I think, you know, you've, yeah, you've highlighted some, some really important things that for all of us as teachers that we mustn't, <laughs> you kind of have to trust the, that the play is, is that powerful that it is going to capture their imagination. Right and try not to chop it up too much. So I do like to show them the entire play first. Absolutely. Um, So there's no sense of like every lesson you're walking line by line through the play and looking at every word that's an analysing because that really kills it. Right. Um, I think they need to hear it and see it, as you said. They need to actually hear it and see it and know that this is a living creation that's meant to be incarnate on a stage. Um, And those, if we can do that first... Then the, hopefully the play will just captivate them and enchant them, and then and then our job is easy. Then it's then they should come right. to questions and be like, "So this bit, yeah, that bit when he jumps on the table." Yes. What What's that joke about? Why is that funny? Or what is what does a body of politic worms mean?
1: Yes, right, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah.
2: So I don't know. Do you find that your students um, are that their imaginations are not captivated by Shakespeare or? or have you had some I, I, experiences of teaching it that are that are more kind of i don't know fruitful or...
0: i they they've always been how do i say this? there have been some classes where I have had to um i think they come preset the students come preset to think kind of like I thought that mm-hmm. um Shakespeare is a relic behind glass that we have to study because our parents, our teachers, the state, you know, whoever insists that we, you know, think Shakespeare's a big deal, but really he's just is yeah. more because I, I think also I wonder if you're I I, I think of the English speaking world, Great Britain and the United States, both love Shakespeare, but I do think that as Americans, um that 16th century Language is just a little bit farther away from us, perhaps, than it is from your students. And so it's just a little bit more opaque. The plays are a little bit more opaque, at least on the page. So yes. for me, I, I do the exact same thing that you do. If, if I can get my students to see a really commanding performance of the play, yes. then it, my work is 90% of my work is done.
2: Right. And we had that is just you know playing
0: around yeah yeah it is then it's just having fun and you don't even realize if your students fall in love with the play and boy what a play to fall in love with as a young person a story about um a story that is driven primarily by jealousy I mean I just remember as a young person being so worried that you know my girlfriend or my love interest was Either not interested in me or <laughs> interested in somebody else, and boy, that will keep you up at night. You know, and these,
2: these are the questions with which I often begin my lessons. So I try to start with a really big question that I haven't looked to the play necessarily, and then and then build in and build in and build in, and and try to teach through analogy and say, okay, well. What is jealousy? What's the difference between jealousy and envy? When is Uh it right for a husband to be jealous? Uh Is Yago jealous or envious? Um, And and then kind of, okay, let's compare Yago's jealousy and Othello's jealousy and and try and, you know, questions like that I think they're really interested in. And I think teenagers, they always want to pass judgment on
1: people.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. He's wrong. And that's great, let them and then just say, okay, why? What uh-huh. what is it? Uh-huh. Who's worse, who's better? What should you do in this situation? What what should Othello do? What should Cassio do? And the more Shakespeare they know, the better they are at reading Shakespeare. I
1: bet. Yeah.
2: Shakespeare reads Shakespeare. So if you know, if I'm teaching one play, I'm hoping to take them to go and see another one and I'm encouraging them to read other plays by Shakespeare and I I've often cross-reference cross just try and show them the fullness of it rather than being reductive you know yes
0: yes I took students I think I mentioned last week that there was a um mm-hmm. there's a great Shakespeare festival that runs practically year-round about three hours south of Gutenberg where I used to teach yeah. and whenever there was a Shakespeare play especially one that was that coincided with the curriculum I would take a big group of students down there. And I remember, oh, they were just such a wonderful production team. Everything they did was just good. I remember there was an incoming freshman. She had arrived early for the summer to Gutenberg. And so I took a bunch of students right when the school year began um, to go see, oh, oh, the most famous comedy. What's wrong with me, Sarah? Um, Beatrice and Benedict. What's wrong with me? Oh yeah, much ado about nothing. We saw much ado. Yeah. And I think that this young woman had never seen I know that she had never seen a Shakespeare play. And I wonder if she'd ever not I wonder if she'd not been to a live performance theater before. Yeah. She walked up to me afterwards and her she like, you know, her jaw had just hit the floor. She could not yeah. believe what she had just seen. And and part of it was um the theatricality of the performances, I think Shakespeare is so conducive to a great theatricality, meaning um, props and stage accoutrements and lighting. So there was a scene, I think the the kind of, um, I'm doing so poorly, the other couple, not Beatrice and Benedict, the win. Um,
2: Claud- Claudio and... Um...
0: I, don't know I know I know' <laughs> like, display
2: I, I, I can't even remember the name <laughs> of the main character.
0: Claudio uh. When Claudio leaves her, they're about to get married and they in Claudio leaves her, the production had this it was incredible. They had a huge just a pile of cut flowers that was waiting up above the stage, invisible to the audience. And the whole play had been kind of like replete with these kind of like visual thematic elements of cut flowers. And when Claudio leaves her at the marriage altar-
2: Yeah, um, hero.
0: What's that? Hero, that's right, thank you. Um, The middle of the stage is bare for a moment. All the characters are kind of like around the stage. And from the middle of the stage, the the lights change into this kind of like glaring white spotlight right in the middle of the stage. And from the rafters of the stage falls this huge, just a pile of cut flowers and they just explode all over the stage. And it is, it was so stunning because it was unexpected, but it was thematically germane. Yeah. and I remember this this young woman walked up to me afterwards, and she like she almost couldn't speak, she could not believe what she had just seen mm-hmm. and I thought to myself, "All of my work is done. I don't have yeah. to really do anything else in the classroom yeah. because she just fell in love with this thing, yeah, and now she's going to show up for class, and sure, of course she showed up for class, and she was absolutely involved, you know she was in there throwing punches and making points and listening and she cared so much. Mm -hmm. Because Shakespeare, Shakespeare just does it. He just, he is, I mean, certainly the English language poet, I don't know, I shouldn't say certainly. He is to me the English language poet of all time and it's so delightful that he might be, I mean, he is is up there with the world poets of all time and he wrote in our language, Sarah Jane. He wrote in our language.
2: That's right. And I know we can, critics and, and teachers can kind of idolize Shakespeare, but that's, that's right. He, did, he isn't the author of humanity, but certainly he has a really good understanding of it. And yeah. uh, I would just really encourage parents and teachers not to be afraid, not to be afraid of the language. Don't go for the kind of abridged version. Agreed. Um, just take a really deep dive and it's going to be okay.
0: (laughs) And I I have found also, I try to encourage teachers and parents, don't be afraid of encouraging your student to memorize a brief bit, especially if it's, if it's a, if it's a complete thought, not just an excerpt from a monologue, but if it's a complete thought and have the students memorize that and have to stand up and perform it. Not, I mean, that can be intimidating, especially because the language can be very difficult. But something happens when you have to get those words out of your body in a public setting. Yeah. Something happens. Something That's different.
2: Right. I can't remember. I was reading something about why we should study poetry, and um, I'm just paraphrasing, but it was something like that. Those those words give a kind of structure to our thoughts and feelings that. That we can't express, and so when you know when you learn them, it, it helps you to to be better attuned to um, to reality, I, I suppose. Yeah. And I, I'm with you. I the the youngest students I've taught throughout my career, I've I've always um, had a competition of uh, a Shakespeare declamation. Where they can choose any, a speech they like, or I might direct them to one, and they all have to learn it. And it's you know at least twenty lines long. And as you say, they have to stand up and recite it. And then the best ones compete, and, and we'll get a judge to come and sort of choose the best one. Yeah.
0: And and how did they respond to that? Did they did they fuss over it?
2: It's, it's always different responses, I think. But but generally, um, once. So, so you might you might get some, some children who are less inclined to learning stuff by rote, but they really enjoy the ideas. And the others are maybe really good at learning stuff by rote and might not understand what the words are at all. So in some way, it's going to appeal to all of them,
0: I think. Right, right.
2: Yeah. So, <laughs> I, yeah, I think that um, what you were saying about, you know, the spectacle of the play... I was just wondering how as a director in act two. Yeah. It, okay. So if you were directing this in the globe, yeah. you've, got, you've got no electricity. Yeah. <laughs> um, how would you do this scene where they arrive, they arrive off a stormy sea and it's the middle of the night?
0: Oh gosh.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. You have threw a, like a really hard question at this, at this director. Such a really hard one. Can I answer a different question? I Actually, I would yes. like, to, <laughs> like to think about that for a little bit. Sure. I'd yeah. like to think about that for a little bit. What I've been thinking about, like, I, I, I think I read less as a literary critic. When I read Shakespeare, I read less mm. as a literary critic and I read more as a director. I really oftentimes think, okay, where would I have Iago stand? What would the blocking look like? And do you know what I th- I think would be if you had to direct this in the globe, there is a huge obstacle that would need to be overcome, which would make, and I think almost the success of the play is really contingent upon this. And what I think is, I think you have to have Iago in a position to seduce the entire audience.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I think we all have to stand near him like he's so repulsive as a character that I I think unlike say Macbeth or unlike even Richard III I think we stand in I'm going to say it about Macbeth and not Richard III we stand in proximity in close proximity to Macbeth and we allow him to like speak directly to us like to our hearts you know and I think that that's not there with Iago. Like, I, I never have felt, man, I'm just going to give myself to Iago. I'm just going you
2: know, to... <laughs> this is, is going to reveal more about, about me than Iago, but there are times I find Iago so funny. Whereas what? Macbeth, apart from, apart from the scene with his um, armor bearer, Satan, where really Macbeth is the, the butt of the joke, Yeah. Um, Macbeth isn't very funny, whereas Iago's hilarious. And I totally get Yago's impatience with Rodrigo, who's a bit of a fool. Right, and, right. Um, Yago's put-downs so so funny. And, and also I, I can sympathize with Iago's uh, kind of, Yago's pretty fed up with all of Othello's boasting as well. And right. so the, in that sense, I think Iago could get a lot of laughs out of the audience. and And then that's the thing that's got you because by the end of the play, you realize oh no, what have I been
0: laughing at? Exactly, right, exactly. Yeah, when you laugh with him, you're laughing at the cost of another character or characters yeah. on stage, and it helps you stand closer to Iago. Exactly. That's, I think the thing that, so that's one of the, I think the big obstacle in producing this play at somewhere like The Globe, where you have no, it's just a huge outdoor theater and you've got no electricity. So the big question is, how do you have a single character whose soul is bespotted and besmirched in like every possible way? How do you get him to whisper into the ear of the audience without any sort of amplification? And I think, you know what I'm saying? Do you see that is how that would be a problem
2: Yeah. I suppose, uh, I've, have you been to the globe? Have you seen any? No, no, I
0: never, I've seen productions, filmed productions, um, of it, but I've never been there.
2: Oh, well, you must come. I I know, (laughs) I know. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that the globe does that, that's a little bit anathema to us now, because we're so used to audiences sitting down in rows and not moving or saying anything for the whole performance. Um, in the globe, there's much more movement and that, that barrier between the stage and the audience is, is much less uh, kind of absolute. And so, you know, for Yago to be wandering through the audience or t- talking to people directly or making jokes um, at, at the expense, perhaps, of the groundling stuff. I don't know, like a pantomime element to it that we, we don't get now in some productions of Shakespeare, which can be very serious, you know.
0: Yes, yes, right, right.
2: So, yeah, I think you're right. Yago does need to be close to the audience.
0: Yeah. And to somehow have him do it without the appearance of shouting.
1: Which no, exactly. That,
0: that, that requires an actor um, who has real vocal capacity. There's no other way to say it, real vocal capacity. Um, so let's talk about The Globe for a little bit.
2: Okay.
0: I did. I am watching a Globe production of Othello. I think I mentioned it last week with Tim McInerney playing Iago. And one of the things that I love about it is that there are probably maybe three or four camera angles that look like they're preset around the perimeter of the Globe. And during some shots, you will see characters that are on stage and behind them, you'll see what looks like another character kind of at the very periphery of the stage. And then you realize oh, that's not a character. That's someone who bought a ticket and is kind of leaning... Yeah. They're actually on the stage, sort of leaning on the stage yeah. because um, that's how close they are to the action.
2: And that's, you know, in As You Like It, uh, that's that image, all the world's a stage. is Yeah. A, the Globe is a metaphor. And people went to the Globe to see the play, but they also went to People Watch because you could be in the theatre and get a look at the queen or the king who's going to be sitting there too. And you'd see all the nobility and clothes and the nobility would see the guys who'd wandered in off the docks, perhaps in their lunch break. Right. I don't know, gutting fish or chewing horses. Um, And so it it is this wonderfully diverse uh, microcosm of the globe. And the sky is above you and, and the evil characters come up from underneath the stage, which was called hell. And um, yeah, we don't always get that in a, perhaps in a modern theater
0: setting. Yeah. I read a book about the, I th- it was called something like, um, the year 1601. Um, oh, about,
2: James Shapiro. Is it that one?
0: Th- it, that might be it. I hope I, I hope I got it.
2: 1599. Say it again. Is it called 1599?
0: That's what it is. That's what it is. And there's a story in it about, yeah. um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah Jane, it's been a while since I read the book, Richard Burbage, who probably played Iago in Othello, Mm -hmm. who played Hamlet, who probably played all of the major um, dramatic roles in the tragedies, and probably Benedict also, one of the great, great actors of the English stage and is best known with his affiliation with Shakespeare. He, He and his brother owned was it the Rose Theater that became the Globe Theater? Is that right? And there, yeah. was, there was a, they, they, the theater was on one side of the Thames River and
1: yeah.
0: the, I guess the lease ran out or their rental agreement for that particular piece of property um, expired and the property owner would not allow Shakespeare's yeah. troupe, including the Burbage's, to re-up with them. So what did they They
2: do they were
0: evicted right and so in the middle of the night and this was in i think 1599 in the middle of the night shakespeare goes to the theater breaks down the theater they must have hired like tons of workmen to help with them put the theater on a boat sail it down the thames and put it up on a new piece of property do you know
2: this story yeah yeah, that's how the book starts. I know I was fascinated by it. And um, and it shows how the co- the company of actors that became, it was the Chamberlain's men and then the King's men were, um, you know, they were kind of super skilled. They, they, they could be carpenters. Um, Shakespeare wrote plays. He also acted in them and wow. directed them. And there was that that kind of, you know, sense of just mucking in because, um, yeah, they, they didn't have... the so they just built one themselves. They carried all the bits of wood across the river. There's a, a big thing in London that, um, you know, south of the river is kind of where all the bad stuff happens. And so, south of the river was, you know, where the theatres were. It's where the bear baiting happened. It's where the cockfighting happened. And it was, it was kind of a bit seedy. And yeah. and um, and so that the river was seen as this kind of separation between. Uh, the kind of, I suppose, more genteel society and then the wildness on the other side of the river, which yeah. is, it's not a very accurate divide, but...
0: It's not a very accurate
2: divide. Yeah, whereas now, of course, going to the theatre can, can be seen as something... Um, Posh. I don't know. Yeah, that you might save up to do for your 50th birthday.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's
2: not for everyone. But that's not how it was at all in, in the globe.
0: I th- I think that's a shame. Uh, one of my dreams is to do kind of guerrilla theater so that, yes. that you know, because, because theater prices are so exorbitant today. And I feel like this major, yeah. I mean, it, it's one of the oldest standing art forms in the history of the world, if not the oldest. And it's becoming yeah. more and more just something that people who have great wealth can afford. And so I think people are, are, they're not falling out of love with theater so much as they just are completely unacquainted. Like this, this young woman that was like
2: Mm.
0: entering my school. I don't think that she had ever seen even a play. And it was stunning to me.
2: Whereas if you were an Athenian, then it was state enforced theater for everyone once a year, wasn't it?
0: Absolutely right. Everyone. And they built theaters large enough for everyone to, for the entire polis to kind of participate because yeah. it was it was like how could you be a citizen in a polis without being like really involved in the theater? that's impossible
1: yeah
0: i yeah exactly. i miss I miss that vision of the theater as not just as an entertainment but as like part of state and culture craft i really I really miss that it still plays the role of of culture craft, i think, but in ways that we don't really recognize as readily as in, in previous times, namely with the Greek polis. Sarah-Jean,
1: exactly. what you... And
2: Shakespeare was operating under constraints in that he was clearly fascinated in politics, he was writing after the Reformation, there's all kinds of interesting um, religious tensions that haven't worked themselves out yet in England, and, um, and yet... There's this character called the Master of the Revels who would see every play, and if he thought that there was anything treasonous in a play, Shakespeare could be executed right. for treason. So um, I think he's this—he's this kind of stealth social critic, really, where he'll take us to these foreign lands and give us these characters from history and from mythology and other stories in order, sometimes, to to try and point out some stuff to us about what's going on right, right now in England
0: right and you're right like he's walking the razor's edge yes. and also you have to say if he's obsessed with one concept for me if he's obsessed with one concept it's the concept of um maybe the fragility or the strength of kingly power yeah. i mean in every always looming in the background is some sort of threat from a foreign invader, even in this play, this yeah. play, it's hardly even, it's hardly even part of the plot. You could almost, except for the fact that Othello must be a great and powerful general. The whole engagement with the Turks for me is a sidebar that could be eliminated, but still he puts it on the horizon because I, I kind of have the sense. He's a little bit obsessed with it. He like, he, he lies awake thinking about this, does Shakespeare, about the nature of kingly rule, what happens right. when kings um, abuse their own conscience, as in Macbeth, as in Richard III, um, and what happens to a civilization when this single ruler either comes under threat from foreign activity or comes under threat by his own misdeeds and lack of virtue.
2: You're right, and Shakespeare's so attentive to his audience, isn't he, that he writes a play for everybody, that he's not writing for the intellectual elite or the very wealthy, but he knows the king or the queen is sitting there in the audience mm. um, alongside uh, everybody else. And I, I wonder with fellow, because as you said, it's, it's difficult to figure out what's going on here in terms of kingship because Othello isn't a king. Right. Um, nations aren't going to rise and fall in this so much. Uh, Venice is a, is a little republic. It's, it's pretty stable. It won't be conquered by the Turks. And I wonder if it's because he's writing probably in the first year or so of King James's reign. And, yeah. and so he, he couldn't really go in and start speculating about that. He had to be really careful. He didn't know how the king would respond to this and you can see how later when he finds out that James I has this fascination with witchcraft then Shakespeare uh-huh. kind of jumps on that and starts to play around with that in and, and I so I just find I wonder if in this play he's being a little bit careful but that's just that's just my, my theory so I think that he, in this play he kind of gives us okay let's do um, something safe like barbarian versus Christian and uh-huh, um, uh-huh. let's just see how that goes down and right. um, I I wonder if that's maybe what's going on in Othello.
0: That makes a lot of sense like, to
2: me. Hamlet's, for me, much clearer. And I, I really don't want to advocate political readings of his plays. I don't think that, you know, all his plays are a, a kind of about political power or anything. But it is interesting to look at the historical context. And for me, something like Hamlet, you've got, Denmark, which is this state that is gross, it needs weeding, it's it's kind of overblown, it's self-satisfied, it's complacent, um, which could be a picture of the reign of Queen Elizabeth towards Mm. the end of the Golden Age. Mm. And then you've got this young um, up-for-it fighter, Fortinbras on the outside, who comes in at the end and kind of smashes everything. Um, And I wonder if that's Shakespeare saying, look, do we need to be a bit more on our guard here? Elizabeth's yeah. over here forever. She doesn't have an air. Let's not
0: be asleep in the garden, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not be asleep in the garden unless we get poison point point yeah. uh, poured in our ear. Um, Sarah Jane, let's start moving toward the end. Uh, yeah. What do we look for in chapters three, four, and five, especially chapter three? What sort of things are you going to be reading for as we go forward?
2: Well, one of the things about this play, as, as you said, when we first spoke about this, is the, that sense of constant building up of tension and the pace of it, that it's got this steady flow, which is almost unbearable. It's, it's almost the leisurely pace at which Iago proceeds is terrifying because it's, he feels as if he has this control. And so in this act, Act Two, which we didn't talk about very much, he effectively ruins Cassio's reputation and he has um, Rodrigo where he wants him. He's made his fool his purse. And Rodrigo's getting increasingly anxious because Rodrigo's mu- running out of money. So as we go into act three, um, you can see how Iago is positioning all his pieces on the chessboard to right. go in for the kill. And so now we need to think about how how is Cassio going to respond to... Um, his pride being damaged like this in public because he's a Florentine and he's one of the curled darlings. And, uh, you know, Iago makes fun of him always kissing his three fingers, you know, that Italian gesture uh-huh. um, of kind of going, ah, oh, ciao, Bella, and kiss. <laughs> and Iago's always making fun of his, um, of the kind of excesses of, of Cassio. So Cassio's wounded. And if we're looking at this in a Machiavellian sense, Yago's got quite a few uh, victims here who he has neither crushed nor consolidated. So there's plenty of room for things to uh, to move around. Mm. We've got Desdemona lined up with Cassio. Um, Yago's going to try and exploit Desdemona's virtue there. He's started to sow seeds of doubt in a mind about Cassio's reliability. And, and so in Act 3, we're going to see how that augments and, and how... Iago increasingly isolates and alienates Othello.
0: Yes. I love the comparison with a chess game. It's a, it's a gambit that, he's, that yeah. Iago is playing. And it looks to Othello one way, and so he is going to just walk into this trap, and everything has been arranged for Othello to walk into this trap. And once he has walked into this trap... um. He'll be toppled. Yeah, he'll yeah. be toppled.
2: So Othello's two closest advisors have been brought into disrepute by Iago, his wife, and Cassio. And um, in the position of Cassio, we have uh, a lieutenant who, has, who has, has guilt and shame, so he has done something bad, and publicly he's... he's Um, Going to be admonished for that. But then in the case of Desdemona, she's a guiltless character who is because of because of Iago starting to gain this kind of shameful reputation as 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 an unfaithful wife um, On no basis whatsoever. So I think that's gonna be interesting to look at as well. The relationship between guilt and shame.
1: Yes
0: Um, I'm gonna um, keep my eye on Amelia because yes. I think Amelia, we, we did a podcast yesterday, Sarah Jane, on um, the Odyssey, and we were talking about yeah. Helen, and Helen is this this character in both the Iliad and the Odyssey, which she seems to be. Um, how do you say it? She she almost seems to not equivocate, but she's she's almost kind of vanilla. Like where does she stand and? Yeah. Heidi, I think was really good on it. I mean, Heidi's pointing out if you were in Helen's shoes and you were kind of, you're a war captive in, in a lot of ways, you're a war captive. Um, you're, you cannot speak your mind and expect to, um, have your life remain safe. And I, and I feel a little bit though. Amelia is, is obviously very different than Helen. She, I think is in circumstances that are comparable She is married to Iago and she surely knows at least part of his nature. And Iago has this plan, yet she also seems to have affection for Desdemona, genuine affection for Desdemona. And so how is Amelia going to, how is she going to navigate this?
2: Mm. Yeah, we can talk a bit perhaps about that conversation they both have about uh, virtuous wives and what, what, what lens they would go to to kind of advance their husbands here. And Amelia says some shocking Things, so perhaps we could look at that. I think a, a comparison between Helen and Desdemona is, is really interesting. Oh, yeah. That. I'll have to listen to the podcast. But um, Helen reminds me a bit of that character in Don Quixote, the, um, the beautiful shepherdess who kind of turns up to all these men who are accusing her of ruining their lives. Bit like huh. Helen, and she says, "Look, beauty as a virtue is neutral. I'm beautiful. If if you fall in love with me, that's not my fault. You have to deal with it." Um, and that's kind of the problem that Desdemona has. She she's beautiful. Perhaps physically, we're not so sure. I think she is physically beautiful, but but definitely her nature is beautiful. Mm. Um, and that's the thing that comes under attack. And and Iago uses that to his advantage because it's plausible that Cassia would be in love with her. And Rodrigo's in love with her. Yes. And Iago says a little bit that he is... I can't remember exactly what he says. It's just at the end of Act 2.
0: What Iago says?
2: Yeah, about being in love with Desdemona. I thought
0: thought it was at the beginning of Act... The beginning of Act 2. But my memory might have failed me.
2: Uh, It's when he's speaking to Rodrigo... Never mind. Yeah. Find it another.
0: Yeah, we we can talk about it Uh, next
2: time. Now I do love her too. Not out of absolute lust, though peradventure I stand accountant for its greater sin, but partly led to die at my revenge, for that I do suspect the lusty Moor hath leapt into my seat.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So he says he's going to use Desdemona to win the Moor to renounce his baptism. And so it becomes. As we talked about before, this battle for almost like a battle for Othello's soul—yeah, turn Turk or going to um, be true to his baptism.
0: Right, right. Boy, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Hey, um, we could go on, but we can also catch up with what we left on the table next week in the following. Will you be in sure. Canada still next week, or will you have returned home?
2: I'll be back in England next week. Yeah. Where will you be?
0: I will be in my cottage in Seattle, I believe.
2: Sounds bliss.
0: Yeah, it does.
1: It does.
0: (laughs) Hey, safe travels to you. This was so much fun. And let's do it again next week for Act Three of Othello.
2: Yeah, great to chat to you and speak to you soon. Thanks for listening,
0: everybody. This is Tim McIntosh for Sarah Jane Bentley and for David Kern in absentia. Thanks for listening to The Play's The Thing. And we'll talk to you next week.